I don't have to ask who that's for. Oh, my back is killing me. And it's freezing. I know the grave is cold, but this is ridiculous. Whew, at last. When bodies to their graves, souls from their graves remove. My grave has broke up again. Some second guest to entertain. Reverend Dunn, I've been sent to pick you up for your interview. Ah, me. Is that today? Give me a moment to change out of the shroud. Hello and welcome to Page Parley. This is the show where we interview authors about their work. Today we're speaking to the man that many credit as the founder of metaphysical poetry, the Reverend Dr. John Dunn. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. You're very welcome. This is a novel distraction. It's not thought for the day, but we do our best. I've never been invited to speak for them. To be fair, you're hard to reach nowadays. Oh, why, I've had the same address for 390 years. True, but our producer still had to do a bit of digging to find you. Now let's jump right in. Can you tell us how you became a writer? Certainly. I started writing seriously in university. I adored Baroque poetry, especially from Europe. Conventional Elizabethan poetry was so dull and predictable. Baroque poetry was surprising and witty. The subjects you wrote about seemed pretty intense. I was a university student. I had a lot of feelings. What kind of reaction did you want to provoke? I wanted to grab the reader from the first line, so my beginnings were abrupt and I preferred to use jagged, speech-like rhythms. I wanted to keep them on their toes. Why was that important to you? By keeping them off balance, I could use my poetry to criticise aspects of society. When I was a young man, I saw corruption in every avenue of life, particularly when it was close to home. I don't want to presume, but are you talking about the religious conflict that was going on at the time? I had a complicated relationship with the church. I was born Catholic, and that made me a criminal in the eyes of the law. How did that affect your early life? I was luckier than most. I was allowed to study at both Hertford College and Cambridge, but I was not permitted to graduate. I began to resent these unjust systems. Blind faith prepared the soil for seeds of hatred. Those above me used my faith to strangle my hopes and dreams. It choked my brother to death. They caught him hiding a priest and... He died in prison. Keep the truth which thou hast found. Men do not stand in so ill case, that God hath with his hand signed kings' blank charters to kill whom they hate. Nor are they vicars, but hangmen to fate. Fool and wretch, wilt thou let thy soul be tied to man's laws, by which she shall not be tried at the last day? Oh, will it then boot thee to say a Philip or a Gregory, a Harry or a Martin taught thee this? Is not this excuse for mere contraries equally strong? Cannot both sides say so, that thou mayest rightly obey power, her bounds know, those past, her nature, and name is changed, to be then humble to her as idolatry? 
I'm very sorry for your loss. How did you move forward? Such a simple question, but it provokes a complex answer. For a time I became a religious sceptic. How could I be certain about anything when my mind was in such chaos? I took the path that many distraught young men before me had trod, and ran away to sea. Ship ahead, Admiral! What flag do they fly, sailor? The Spanish colours, sir! It must be the treasure fleet. Yes, very good, Riley. Get back to your post. Essex, listen to me. Our damages are too great to engage them now. We've been on a wild goose chase to the Azores. The St. Matthew and St. Andrew are barely keeping afloat. And the war spite has no mainsail. Just because your ship is damaged does not mean we should call off the whole engagement. The fleet is in confusion. Spain has never had so dangerous an enterprise on us. Don't be a coward, Riley. We swore to thwart this trade route, and by God, I'll make sure that we see it through. If you go through with this, I will make sure that Her Majesty knows of your foolishness, even if it's with my last breath. To hell with you! Out of a fired ship, by which no way, but drowning could be rescued from the flame. Some men leaped forth, and ever as they came, near the foe's ships, did by the shot decay. So all were lost, which in the ship were found. They in the sea being burnt, they in the burnt ship drowned. After that disastrous expedition, I returned to London, only slightly singed for my troubles. No closer to an answer for my quandaries, but with a new gratitude for life. Where did you go from there? I think that the greatest context I can give for the direction the river of my life took next is simply... and more. John? I'm in the back office, Miss Moore. Really, John, I've told you to call me Anne. You have dinner with us every night. If you keep calling me Miss Moore, I will have to call you Chief Secretary, and that would make conversations intolerable. And if I call your Christian name and your uncle heard, then it would be better that I change places with a lame beggar than face his wrath. Then we are an impasse. And heaven laughs to see us languish thus. <laughs> but why were you calling for me? I finished the poem you gave me to proofread. And what did you think? I need to hear it read aloud before I can give my final verdict. You are cruel to leave me in suspense. Nonsense! I am kindly giving you my very considered opinion. We're alternate verses. You start. Mark but this flea, and mark in this, how little that which thou deniest me is. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee, and in this flea our two bloods mingled be. Thou knowest that this cannot be said, a sin, nor shame, nor loss of maidenhead. Yet this enjoys before it woo, and pampered swells with one blood made of two. And this, alas, is more than we would do. Oh, stay three lives and one flea spare, where we almost nay more than married are. This flea is you and I, and this our marriage bed and marriage temple is. 
Though parents grudge and you we are met, and cloistered in these living walls of jet, though use make you apt to kill me, let not to that self-murder added be, and sacrilege three sins in killing three. Cruel and sudden hast thou since purpled thy nail in blood of innocence. Wherein could this flea guilty be, except in that drop which it sucked from thee? Yet thou triumphst and sayest that thou findest not thyself, nor me the weaker now. Tis true, then learn how false fears be. Just so much honour when thou yields to me, will waste as this flea's death took life from thee. Now will you give me your opinion? Your choice of metaphor is absurd. I see. But I liked its abstractness. Using the extended metaphor to combine several ideas was playful. It had energy and theatricality. Yes, I've decided that I liked it very much. That was very comprehensive. I do have one question. I'll do my best to answer it. Who was it for? Ah, uh, uh, I cannot say her name. Oh. Her uncle would kill me. Oh. <laughs> we married in secret. I had been a womanizer as a young man. I have heard you referred to as the bad boy of the Elizabethan age. I'm not proud of it, <laughs> but I would give up everything to be with Anne. My future, my past, everything. Where, like a pillow on a bed, pregnant banks swelled up to rest, the violet's reclining head, sat we too, one another's best. Our hands were firmly cemented with a fast balm which thence did spring. Our eye beams twisted and did thread our eyes upon one double spring. So to intergraft our hands as yet was all the means to make us one, and pictures in our eyes to get was all our propagation. What happened when your secret was discovered? Did I mention that her father was a lieutenant of the Tower of London? I'm going to kill him. I don't think patricide would look good for your future prospects. John, this is serious. We're married. He has absolutely no right to lock you up. I'll find Brevbrook and he can explain that it was all completely legal. No need. He's in here too. Hello. I... Don't believe it. Why would he do this? I think he wants to make John Don, John Undone. Do you want me to get you out of here or not? I'd rather you did, please. Then stop making puns and come here. You may now kiss the bride. John, look. There's the house. It's rather... Petite. Well, beggars can't be choosers, and it was kind of willy to loan it to us. I suppose that means I have to be polite to your cousin now. Living beside a river! So poetic. 
I won't have much time for poetry between Morton's pamphlets and legal cases. I wish that you didn't have to work with Morton. I despise those anti-Catholic writings, John. I really do. They're so full of condemnation and self-flagellation. We have to earn money, dear. If that means licking boots, then I'd better develop a liking for the taste of leather. If protecting you means converting, then point me in the direction of tea and cake with the vicar. Do you really believe what you write? I believe in food on tables, roofs over heads, and semi-regular cups of tea. All right, clever clogs, I'll stop asking if you read me a poem. And what does my lady wish to be regaled with? Something... Mm, something about a new home, a new life, something annoyingly sweet. Come live with me and be my love, and we will some new pleasures prove of golden sands and crystal brooks, with silken lines and silver hooks. There will the river whispering run, warmed by thy eyes more than the sun, and there the enamoured fish will stay, begging themselves they may betray. If thou, to be so seen, beest loath, by sun or moon, thou darknest both. And if myself have leave to see, I need not their light having thee. Given that we're speaking to you now, your luck must have changed. Indeed. The tides of zeitgeist turned in my favour. After the arrival of James I... Sixth of Scotland. I got something of a second chance. Cottery poetry was now eminently fashionable. Please... Take a seat, Sir Drury. Oh, let me move that doll for you. Quite the family you have here, Don. How many of the little scamps do you have? Eight. Dad, come and see this frog. Daddy is with Sir Drury right now, darling. Oh, do come in. I think you'll find the news I have very interesting. Sir Drury, it is an honour to have you visit. No, sir, from you, my dear. You and your husband must call me Robert. Daddy, pick me up. Why are you covered in mud? The frog tried to escape. You said that you had news for us. I do indeed. I had the very great pleasure of reading one of John's poems in a private collection, and I must say I find it very droll. Droll? Yes, very... how do you say? Not of this earth. Metaphysical. Yes, that will do. Combining eloquent arguments with passionate language makes for very entertaining reading. Thank you, sir. Robert. Now... I know that you're serving at Parliament, but that doesn't pay. You need regular employment. I do earn some from occasional legal work. Occasional doesn't cut the mustard. Look here, old chap. I like your writing, and I for one would like to see more of it. I want to become your patron. You do? He accepts. Ah, marvellous. John, this is amazing. I don't know how to thank you. No need, old chap. No need at all. There was one other thing, though. Here comes the catch. This house, charming as it is, just isn't big enough for a family like yours. Now, I have an apartment in Drury Lane just going to waste, and it would be wonderful to have it full of laughter, children, and apparently frogs. His name is Pierford. Laughter, children, and Pierford. What could be better? Do say you'll come. What do you think, Lucy? Does the Muffin Man still live there? Oh, yes, I know the Muffin Man. I see him every day. Then when can we move in? 
Look upward, that's towards her, whose happy state we now lament not, but congratulate. She to whom all this world was but a stage, where all sat harking how her youthful age should be employed, because in all she did, some figure of the golden times was hid. She could not lack what e'er this world could give, because she was the form that made it live, nor could complain that this world was unfit to be stayed in then when she was in it. She the first tried in different desires, by virtue and virtue by religious fires, she to whose person paradise adhered, as courts to princes she whose eyes ensphered, starlight enough to have made the south control, had she been there, the starful northern pole. She, she is gone, she is gone. When thou knowest this, what fragmentary rubbish this world is. Thou knowest, and that is not worth a thought. He honours it too much that thinks it naught. Think then, my soul, that death is but a groom, which brings a taper to the outward room. Whence thou spiest first a little glimmering light, and after brings it nearer to thy sight. For such approaches doth heaven make in death, Think thyself labouring now with broken breath, And think those broken and surf notes to be Division, and thy happiest harmony. Your writing frequently tackled religious subjects, but when did you begin to consider becoming a priest in the Church of England? It was not so much a religious calling as a mundane one. The king thought that I was better suited to holy orders than a parliamentary seat, I eventually gave in, and received the doctorate that I had been denied before. Your religious writings inherited some... unexpected elements from your poems? Batter my heart, three persons, God. For you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. That I may rise and stand, or throw me, and bend your force to break. Blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another dew, labour to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captived, and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you enthrall me. Never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. As I said before, I had a lot of feelings. Did this change of occupation help your family? There is a cruel twist of fate in that. Just when we had as secure a situation as we could hope for, we lost our anchor. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Into your hands I commend my spirit. For you have redeemed me. O Lord, God of truth. 
Since she whom I loved hath paid her last debt, to nature and to hers, and my good is dead, and her soul early into heaven ravished, holy in heavenly things my mind is set. Hear thee admiring her, my mind did wet, to seek thee, God, so streams do show the head. But though I have found thee, and thou my thirst hast fed, a holy thirsty dropsy melts me yet. But why should I beg more love, whereas thou dost woo my soul for hers offering all thine, and dost not only fear, lest I allow my love to saints and angels things divine, but in my tender jealousy dost doubt. Lest the world, flesh, yea, devil, put thee out. Perhaps it is no surprise that I became fascinated with death. Two of our children were stillborn, three died in infancy, and the recent loss of my partner sent me searching for sanctuary in my writing. I tried to puzzle out the place of death in some great plan. Your works before your loss have been described as cynical, but afterwards you seem to become more philosophical and contemplative. Was this a conscious decision? I did become somewhat gloomy, but my goal was to challenge the fear of death. Do you think that your writings contributed to you becoming the Dean of St. Paul's? I suppose that these losses gave me empathy. I could relate to my parishioners in a new and profound way. Even as a respected leader of the church, you were still noted for pushing the boundaries. It's hard to break the habit of a lifetime. Is it at all possible for you to lie still, Dean? I am sitting still. You are writing, and you keep twiddling your pencil. Oh, very well. Lucy, could you come here for a minute? Dad, why are you in a shroud? Is that an urn you're standing on? It's only a prop. More explanation is needed, Father Dearest. Mr Stone is making my memorial statue. The idea is that it looks like I am rising out of it on the day of the resurrection. We're setting a trend. You're a complete drama queen, Dad. Just please come and write for me, dear. When one man dies, one chapter is not torn out of the book, but translated into a better language. And every chapter must be so translated. God employs several translators. Some pieces are translated by age, some by sickness, some by war, some by justice. But God's hand is in every translation, and his hand shall bind up all our scattered leaves again. For that library where every book shall lie open to one another, as therefore the bell that rings to a sermon calls not upon the preacher only, but upon the congregation to come. So this bell calls us all, but how much more me, who am brought so near the door by this sickness? No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were. As well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were, any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind.
and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Are you afraid of dying, Dad? I used to be. But I think that I might understand a little better now. I don't think of it as a disaster. We simply rest. Our toils are done, and now we can sleep. I can't help being angry. Death feels like a thief. Maybe try thinking of him as a coachman. We move to a different state of being. We can't understand it yet, but when we aren't restricted by flesh and bone, I think it will be easier to comprehend. I am afraid. And my long-winded explanation definitely isn't helping. Would you like a hug? Maybe after you get out of the shroud. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, John. I'm so sorry. Lucy! Will you come away? You need rest. Let me stay a little while. I don't want her to be lonely. Death, be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death. Nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow. And soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls' delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings and desperate men. And dost with poison, war and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellst thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally. And death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. You don't have to do this job. Nonsense. I can't keep His Majesty King Charles waiting. I might be executed. I see your cheek is in fine health, but that's the only thing about you that is healthy. I can't imagine he'll be best pleased if you keel over at the pulpit. Robert, I need to do this. I want these to be the last words they remember that I said. Not read after the fact in passionless text. Besides, I can't turn down the chance to speak at the Palace of Whitehall. Fine. You shall have it your own way. Just aim for someone soft in the front row if you fall. Buildings stand by the benefit of their foundations that sustain and support them. The foundations suffer them not to sink. The body of our building is in the former part of this verse. It is this, 
He that is our God is the God of salvation. Unto this God the Lord belong the issues of death. That is, it is in his power to give us an issue and deliverance. Even then when we are brought to the jaws and teeth of death and to the lips of that whirlpool, the grave. What kind of issue and transmigration we shall have out of this world, whether prepared or sudden, whether violent or natural, whether in our perfect senses or shaken and disordered by sickness? There is no condemnation to be argued out of that, no judgment to be made upon that, for howsoever they die, precious in his sight is the death of his saints, the ways of our departing out of this life are in his hands. Not that God will deliver us from dying, but that he will have a care for us in the hour of death. This whole world is but a universal churchyard, and the life and motion that the greatest persons have in it, but as the shaking of buried bodies in their grave by an earthquake, as the phoenix out of the ashes of another phoenix, formerly dead, he must necessarily die. He gave up the ghost, and as God breathed a soul into the first Adam, so this second Adam breathed his soul into God. There we leave you in that blessed dependency. Lie down in peace in the grave, till he vouchsafe you an ascension into the kingdom which he hath prepared for you with the inestimable price of his incorruptible blood. Amen. In a modern context, you might have been called death positive. Well, eternal life does tend to reduce the sting. Death is just another process of life. One last question. Do you have any advice for new writers? You know that I was famously dismissive of my fellow poets. I'm more likely to insult than encourage. Go on. Very well. Never stop questioning the world around you. Don't just accept that this is the way things are. Write it all down. Be absurd. Be a fool. For a little wise the best fools be. Thank you so much for listening. In John Donne, Love, Death and Poetry, Donne was played by Mark McCartney. Anne was played by Alicia O'Donnell. Lucy and Raleigh were played by Katrina Scott. Drury was played by Lorne Scott Kerr. And the presenter and additional roles were played by Rosie Beach. This has been a Yorick Radio production.